Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. So on one side is animal rights. And animal rights is you can't use animals no matter what. You can't have a pet. You can't eat meat. You can't go to the circus. You can't go to the zoo. No use of animals, period. That's the definition of animal rights. And then there's complications in that in terms that about 15% of Americans have that attitude that animals should have rights like humans. Now that's kind of weird because 94% of Americans eat meat. I don't, I don't eat my friends, <laughs> you know? So it's, so the truth is there's probably about three or 4% of Americans that live by an animal rights attitude. And I, 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 I study people for a living. I respect that. If people don't want to use animals, I, I understand it, I get it. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 96, Making the Simple Complex, Deciphering Attitudes Towards Hunting. The guest that's going to join me today is someone that you probably don't know his name, but you know his company's work. His name is Mark Damian Duda, and he's the Executive Director of Responsive Management. Now, why are you going to know Responsive Management's work? Because Responsive Management is an internationally recognized survey research firm specializing attitudes toward natural resource and outdoor recreation issues. That means those hunting surveys that you see reported from time to time that are paid for by the National Shooting Sports Foundations and various other organizations are oftentimes conducted by responsive management. Now, Mark is a certified wildlife biologist. He has a master's degree with an emphasis on natural resource policy from Yale. He has been involved in over a thousand studies in his 35 years of work. And all of this work tends to sort of focus on people's relation to national resources and the outdoors. He's also authored 150 different publications and four books. We cover all kinds of crazy topics here that I find super interesting. We find out how responsive management came to exist, which a little bit of happenstance there. Um, we talk about how many people currently hunt and what the state of hunting is. We also are going to get into how the general public feels about hunting. And if you've looked into any of these surveys, you're already going to know some of those answers there. And then we're going to finish up with Mark's take on what the biggest threat to hunting is. So let's just get right into it and let's talk to Mark. Before we keep going, a real quick question for you. Are you concerned with urban sprawl? Are you concerned with the threat of our increased human presence as put on wildlife and wild spaces? If so, an easy next step for you to try to help with this situation is to visit our Patreon page and become a monthly supporter. If you like this podcast, if you would like to help form a new nonprofit that helps combat and mitigate the effects of urbanization, visit patreon.com slash conserve the wild. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash conserve the wild. Go visit today and become a sponsor. Once again, welcome back, everyone. And today we have a special guest, as you heard in the intro, uh, Mark Damian Duda. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely. Mark, I, everyone just heard all your credentials, and they are pretty extensive. 
And it all sort of stem, seems like it stems out of uh, responsive management. So how did responsive management come to exist? Sure. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm not sure it's a long list of credentials. I think it means I'm just old. So I've done a lot of things. <laughs> so, but I, I appreciate that so much. And thanks for what you do. Um, yeah, responsive management has been a lot of my life for 31 years. Um, I actually started my career out of graduate school working for a state agency at the time, the Florida Game and Freshwater Fish Commission. They're now the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission as one of the first what so-called human dimensions researchers. That is, is that I had this blend of wildlife biologist as well as social scientist. And so um, spent six years there, six wonderful years in the state of Florida. Um, and at the time, um, a group called the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, which is a collection of the state agencies out West, Texas Parks and Wildlife, New Mexico Game and Fish, Colorado Department of Natural Resources, et cetera, have a consortium and they said, you know, we're really good when it comes to managing wildlife, but we're terrible when it comes to understanding and managing people. And as Aldo Leopold said in 1943, the problem of wildlife management is not how we should handle the game. The real problem is one of human management. Wildlife management is comparatively easy. Human management is difficult. That was back in the, he said that in the 1940s, but in the 1980s, um, the same was true. We were really good at managing wildlife. We knew what to do. We knew how to bring back elk and, and, we, and we had done it. But the whole people side of things started to really engulf a lot of the agencies. And so they wanted to incorporate that into it. And they said, let's um, start a project for a year or two. We're gonna um, get the best people around the, the US from universities. Um, you know, a guy named Ben Payton up at Michigan State University, um, a couple of professors from the University of Arizona, um, Ben Carpenter being one of those, um, my graduate school professor at Yale, Steve Keller, number of other, you know, people who'd been doing this for a while and said, you know, help us incorporate the people's side of conservation into our agencies. And so I, of course, had that connection with Dr. Keller. Um, I was in Florida at the time and they said, hey, you wanna help start this? And I was like, heck yeah. Um, so I, I helped for about a year or two. And then all of a sudden they said, you know, we can get some money to kind of get this started. And that was in the 1980s and we started and we became very busy. And a lot of projects started to flow through this governmental entity that was never meant to do something like that. They kind of wanted to start it and, and be done with it. And so um, they asked me if I wanted to, to go out on my own and, and start this thing. And it was a pretty kind of scary thing. It was like, wow, I got a pretty good job. I love Florida. I love the, the agency that I'm working in. Um, I even set up a safety net with the executive director of the agency there. I said, hey, if this thing doesn't work out, can I come back in a year or two and have my job? And they said, heck yeah, you, you come back whenever you want. And they were so gracious. And um, so I started and things got really busy and it was me. And now I've got about 85 people working for me and doing a lot of human dimensions work uh, around the world, mostly in the US, um, most wildlife. I do you know, a lot of wildlife, but I just got off a call. Um, we do a lot of work on litter or air quality or what we just finished a huge project for Clemson University on water quality issues. So we do the full range of issues. That was, it was in 1980, or excuse me, 1990, when we actually went out on my own, when I got kind of kicked out from the nest and have been doing it ever since. But of course, different projects. And over that time, we've done about a thousand studies on, on how people relate to wildlife, the natural world. Um, I love to hunt. I, you know, I'm very well schooled in how we got to where we are with wildlife conservation hunting being an important part of that. I'm sure you've gone into that numerous times in these podcasts about the importance of Pittman-Robertson and, and Hunter's license dollars and, and all of the successes that we've had. So um, certainly one of the areas that we've done a lot of work in for you know, me personally for over 35 years, 31 years as a consultant and, and business owner is with hunting. And it's, a, it's, a, it's you know, such an incredible group of people and, and you know, all, all 12 million of them or so, or whatever that number is, because I know that that's what you want to talk about. So it, it, was, it started out as almost, um, you know, a little bit of luck and then a lot of hard work afterwards. So, um, yeah. 
So you know, you bring up that these state agencies, you know, they know what to do in regards to wildlife management, but they sort of struggle with the social aspect. And and I have to echo echo that in my limited interaction uh, compared to you, limited. Uh, you know, every biologist I've talked to, you know, on this podcast or um, you know, in passing or whenever I talk to biologists about trying to figure out places maybe to hunt and things like that, they all say, they've all told me that the thing that they find the hardest about their job is uh, working with either with the public or presenting information to the public, that social aspect. And, um, you know, I mean, if you know that a certain amount of area can, can hold X number of deer or elk or turkey, and you have, you know, twice that amount, uh, it's pretty simple to manage, you know, that population. You need to reduce that population by half, uh, convincing people that that's the best thing for the overall population in that area is a whole, you know, different ball game. Uh, so what you're doing is, with responsive management is uh, definitely needed. And I'm sure very welcomed with open arms by a lot of those agencies and biologists. So, um, you know, th- thank you for, for all that hard work over these, you know, 30 plus years. Uh, all right. So yeah. How many people hunt? <laughs> and, you know, how many people in the United States hunt? How has that number changed over the past, you know, five, 10, 20, 40 years? I mean, uh, I mean, I, I have read a lot of the studies put out by, you know, the, that the NSSF have put out, um, you know, you, they come out, you know, every what, nine years or 10 years or something like that. I mean, uh, I read these studies, I see, I look at the charts, I look at the graphs and the trends, but um, yeah, uh, how many people hunt and how does it compare? Well, you think that that's a simple question, don't you? And it should be a simple question. How many people hunt? Um, And so I'm going to complicate that. I'm going to make what should be the simple complex, but just, but it's also a really interesting topic. Um, in, in reality, maybe about 12 million people a year hunt in the United States that are 16 years old and older, but that, that's according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who does a, a big national study called the National Survey of Fishing, Hunting, and Wildlife Associated Recreation every five years. Um, but there's some caveats to that. Um, that's a, it's a great study, and that's who who hunt you know, in that particular year. Um, then it gets complicated because sometimes everybody doesn't go every single year. Maybe upwards of 30% of people don't hunt every year. And so it's a matter of definition. You know, some people say, I haven't been hunting in five years, but you're darn straight, I, I'm a hunter. And so do we count those people? Because if you start counting those people, all of a sudden you're talking... 20, 25 million Americans are hunters or consider themselves hunters. And then we talk, well, people say it should be easy. Just count the number of licenses. Well, then it gets complicated because in every state, you don't have to have a license to be a hunter in certain circumstances. In Virginia, if you're a landowner, you know, you don't have to have a license. So I can't just count licenses. Um, in other cases, um, we buy lifetime licenses, and sometimes the state doesn't count those. It's different in every single state, but sometimes they don't count those people who have that license. You might have bought a lifetime license 10 years ago, and you may or may not hunt. How do you count those people? So it actually get, gets a little bit more complicated than, than it should be. As a, an industry, we need to know that because we need to know what those trends are. And so, so I don't want to complicate it, but so yeah, so it's, it's a little bit more difficult than, than it should be. Think about how many licenses you might buy in one state. I mean, you might have to buy this license and this tag and this stamp. Or if you're somebody like me, I've hunted in three, four or five states in the past couple of years. So am I getting counted four or five times? Now, researchers, Fish and Wildlife Service, they try to take all of that into account, but there's, it, it gets more complicated than what you think. But the straight out answer is, yeah, there's probably 12, 13 million people who are hunting in, in, a, in a single year. But there's a lot more people who consider themselves hunters because they just don't go every year. They get a job and they're busy 
they get fired and they can't. And we can talk about that if you want about hunting numbers during COVID. Um, in terms of long-term trends, hunting has been generally on the decline since about the 1980s or so. Um, in uh, 1991, 7% of the population hunted. Um, in 2016, which is the last big national survey that the Fish and Wildlife Service did, only about 4.5% of the population went hunting. So overall, there's a decline, um, there, and we can talk about the reasons for that. The good news is last year during COVID, when people couldn't be inside, we got a lot more people out hunting. Um, and the, the best estimates that we have right now are about 5.4%. Um, there was a 5.4% increase in 2020 over 2019 um, in terms of people who are hunting in their state. Non-residential hunting went up only by about less than 2%, about 1.6%. But any news to the hunting community that there's been an increase is good news because we've had such bad news over the years. Oh, it's declining here, it's declining there. And if, you, if you're interested, we can talk about some of, the, some of the big reasons for that. But in terms of overall trends, that's what we're kind of looking at, you know, sort of longer term declines. Um, recently, some, some, some good things are happening um, out there and there's some speculation on why. Yeah, that's something that you mentioned with the complexity of trying to figure out how many people hunt. There's, you know, even the added part of what constitutes a hunter, right? Like you mentioned, you know, buying a license. There's people that, you know, buy a license and don't go out. Um, there are people that buy a license and then go out two or three days a year. There are people that go that buy a license and hunt, you know, 25 to 50 days a year, which would be probably the category I fall in. And then, you know, I have a, a family member who's a retired teacher. Um, I would venture to guess that he hunts probably 75% of the available days in Pennsylvania um, because he has the time, right? So yeah. what, you know, what is a hunter? Is it, some, you know, how are we classifying that? So it, it is very, very complex when you really start looking down, you know, looking at it more and more in depth. And then, like you said, different states have different roles on who needs a license, who doesn't. And, you know, there's a, there's a couple of people out there I know that haven't been hunting, haven't bought a license for three or four years, but if you ask them, they're going to say, yeah, I'm a hunter. Um, yep. So there, there's a whole, you know, it all depends on how you want to look at it, right? Exactly. And, and so, so we're making the, what should be the simple complex. How about the other side of that coin of people that you or I might take? I, I have a house over on Chincoteague Island. We do a lot of duck hunting out there. And I take people, friends or family members that have never been. And they come with me. They bought a license. They've shot ducks. If you called them up and said, are you a hunter? They'd be like, well, I hunted, but I don't know if I'm a hunter and yet, you know, so there's, it, it can become complicated, but that's the fun of it too. Um, but I think that the, the, the underlying, I think the most important issue that I would like to leave on that score is that, that there's a lot more people out there who consider themselves hunters than, than sort of a license, one year of a license sale number would encapsulate. There, there's a lot of people out there. It's like, almost like, you know, being for a football team, you know, if you're a Florida Gator or a uh, you know, a Clemson Tiger or whatever, my kids are at the University of Virginia Cavalier and you have a hat on the UVA and you go out and, oh, I'm part of that team. I'm part of that team. And so hunters are, are like that, you know, and you got an airplane and you got your camo hat on or something and people kind of nod to you. So there's, there's a lot of hunters out there and there, there's, in reality, there's probably upwards of 20 million hunters out there. So you mentioned uh, the, there, there's a lot to unpack of what you initially said there about how many people hunt and, and everything that goes into it. You mentioned that hunting is on a decline. And I caught in your explanation of it being on the decline that you mentioned the percentage of the po United States population that hunts has gone down. We have more people in the United States than we've ever had before. Um, so is the actual number, overall number of hunters declining, or is it just the percentage of the population we just have less number yeah. of hunters? Great question, both. Okay. Both, yeah, okay. Great, great question. And, um, and there's lots of reasons for that. And, and you're sort of hitting on one with the growth in population. And we can talk about that if you're interested in- Yeah, yeah, let, let's, let's get into that. What, what, are, what are some of the 
consensus reasons to why we have both less total numbers of hunters and this sort of less percentage of the population that are hunters. Yeah, um, I don't I don't know if there's a consensus in terms of I would think there is just because we do a lot of that research. Um, and I can tell you what what I think is happening and we've published papers on this that have gotten through the review process and such so certainly you know consensus and, and to me the most important um, you hit on it is, is the growth in population. And it's in, in, in the, the buzzword being demographics. And the real salient issue is changing demographics. You know, when people start talking about all of these, you know, anti-hunting and stuff, yeah, you know, maybe a little bit, but, but not much. But the big overriding factor in terms of, of the enemy of hunting population numbers is changing demographics. Um, and so if you think about, if you talk to demographers on what the biggest trends in America are demographically, they're going to tell you a couple of things. They're going to say an increase in population, an increase in age. I want you to think about this, Jason. This, this is an amazing statistic that for, you know, you're, you're, you look a lot younger than me. So, so, but I'm an old guy now, but in the 2050s, there's going to be more people over 65 than under 18. Okay, for me, that's a world turned upside down. When I was growing up, there was a bunch of little kids, and then you kind of got in the middle, and it got less, and then there wasn't a bunch of old people. Now it's almost like that pyramid is being reversed. So anyway, so, so we, we have an increase in overall population. We have an increase in age. We have a change in demographics in everybody hears about um, whites becoming a minority. We have issues related to immigration. And I'm not getting political in terms of immigration, just more people are coming into the US that weren't born here. And there's more and more of those individuals. And so when you look at all those big changes in demographics in the US, and then you look at what the issues are in terms of um, assisting in promoting a hunting culture, they're the exact opposite. Let's take the easy one, increase in population. What does an increase in population mean? It means more, more urban areas. It means less opportunity to hunt. When you talk about age issues, well, you know, we all want to think when we're old and in gray or whatever and we retire, we're going to hunt more. And some of us do, but the truth is when you look at the numbers, there's a, lot of, there's a lot more younger people than older people who go hunting. And so all of these demographic changes um, are an increase in urbanization. One of the most profound demographic changes in the US since it was founded is, is more and more individuals are moving to urban areas. Well, to promote a hunting culture, you know, a kid generally has to grow up in a more rural area with opportunity. There's just less people doing that. So the biggest culprit is our demographics. I mean, you know, just outright, just, just, they're just working against the hunting culture. And so, um, yes, there are some adult onset hunters. The community is doing a good job in terms of trying to do that, but it's, it's hard. We're swimming upstream. So demographics are a big one. Um, there's lots of, of other lower ones, but when you really think about it and, and stuff, there's going to be some, um, you know, there's, there, that's sort of the primary issues. Um, you could get into some other things like lack of access, which is important. There's more and more land being closed down. When you talk to hunters and you do research and survey of hunters, the number one issue that a, a hunter will say is, I just, I just can't get into where I used to. You know, and it, there's a couple things going on there. There's that psychological access of not knowing where to go. And then there's just that darn physical access that where I used to go is now a development that's been closed. The gates are closed and locked or whatever it may be. So there's, there's lots of other things. There's that lack of opportunity. Um, one of the things that we used to find that, that people used to say, oh, Mark, that's, you know, that's, it's, it's deeper than that is when you talk to ex-hunters, why don't you hunt anymore? They would say, I don't have enough time. And you know, a couple of academics would be like, no, it's deeper than that, Mark. It's, yeah, they're really just saying it's lack of time. Well, it is, because when you do um, analyses of, of hunting populations against demographics and stuff, and some of this research we did in the early 2000s, and one of the things we said is that um, 
hunting participation is actually tied to a lot of things, age structure, you know, ur urbanization, rural issues and stuff. But one of them that was interesting was housing starts that we went back, we did this huge statistical test on hunting participation versus all these variables, you know, 20, 30 different variables. And housing starts was actually one of the ones that came up as being really important in terms of driving hunting, either driving it up or down. And when we had that big housing bust and recession in 2008 and housing starts were low, we had a increase in hunting participation. And, and it's because it's tied, a lot of hunters are tied to construction and more blue collar types of work. When, you're, when there's a housing boom, you know, we're busy, we're doing stuff, we're, we're working. Um, and last year, think about last year, we saw an increase of what did I say, 5.5% increase across the board in hunting participation. It's because people had more time. We didn't have, some, some of us didn't have jobs. And, um, you know, we were laid off or we couldn't go inside or there was, there was issues. So we had more time. So time is an incredibly important aspect of it. When there's time, people find the time to go hunting. When they're working one or two jobs, either a recession or because it's good times in a boom, we're in a, we're in a housing boom right now. I would, I would postulate, we could play this back in a year from now, but I would postulate that we're not going to see that 5% increase again. Because people are people are back to their jobs and they're and they're working. Try you know uh, try getting somebody to redo your kitchen. There's a year long waiting list, and so um, so there's there's lots of issues. I actually wrote a paper called "The Dirty Dozen" on threats to hunting, but those are sort of the big ones when we talk about demographics, access, lack of opportunity, time, and those issues. You already answered the the question I was going to ask next in regards to sort of the COVID impact. Uh, you know. So you're saying there, I know that I saw more hunters field in 2020 uh, than I had the year before, but I wasn't sure one, are those new hunters or are those uh, existing hunters that have more time? And then also, am I seeing more people because I myself was hunting more <laughs> based on my schedule changes with work, right? I had more time to actually hunt. Um, so yes, you're saying, yes, there was an increase in, in hunter participation, um, and then now you're you're saying that you're going to assume postulate that this year in 2021 uh, we're going to have not have that go back 5%, to the go back to the norm. That's that's what my guess is. Yeah, and and you're right on all. Of, I would say on all of the above that you're definitely seeing. You you I don't know if you were seeing new hunters. You're probably seeing some new hunters, but what you were seeing is the guy who couldn't hunt in 2019 or 2018 who just simply had more time in 2020, um, you know, number one, or two, that some of the things that they wanted to do, like maybe go to the football game, they couldn't do anymore. And so hunting was just a great way of getting outside again, reconnecting. Um, and so I would say everything that you just said, I would say check all of the above, that, that all of those things were happening um, on that, and your observations are right on board. Well, I hope all those people that either reactivated or started new, um, I, I hope that it's not a full 100% drop back down. I hope that at least some of them sort of stick around uh, for another year or two or continue for another 20 years uh, to Agreed. hunt because it, it, you know, you mentioned the Pittman-Robinson Act uh, very early on that, you know, that is directly tied to, to license sales and, um the more license sales, the more money goes into conservation efforts. Yeah. All right. So we have less people hunting now than we used to. We have a lower percentage of hunters in the United States than we used to. What is the, the, what is the feeling from the general public about hunting? Is it generally positive? Is it generally negative? Um, you know, there, I know anyone who's a hunter has had an experience with an anti-hunter, uh, but I don't feel that that's the norm. Uh, I feel that that's a pretty low percentage of actual people out there being anti, truly anti-hunting. So what's the, what's the general feel? Yeah. Again, I'm going to make the simple complex, but hopefully I explained myself. So hopefully I didn't turn too many heads around with the ex explanation of hunting participation, but I can sort of do the same thing with attitudes toward hunting because it's in some ways, it's sort of a similar vein. Um, in general, the Americans support hunting. Probably when you ask the general question, 
you support or oppose. And we always talk about legal regulated hunting, and we can talk a little bit about that because his words matter. But you're looking upwards of eight out of every 10 Americans supporting hunting. And so there's, there's general support there. And that has been the case ever since I've been tracking that, which is from the 90s. So, you know, 30 plus years or so of, of looking at that, you know, that in depth and monitoring that every single year for 31 years through several studies. You mentioned the NSSF, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, Fish and Wildlife Service, um, the Hunters Leadership Forum of the NRA, a lot of state agencies that we do work for fund these studies for us to do to monitor that. So, you know, we can say pretty unequivocally that about 80% of Americans support legal regulated hunting. And, and in general, that's kind of gone up a little bit since the 1990s, whereas opposition has gone a little bit down, you know, within the 10, 15% range opposed. Um, but then it gets complicated, not complicated because it's explainable, but then it's, it's, not, um, it's not just do you support or oppose hunting because there's lots of variants. Let's take the easiest one, which is by species. Um, you're never going to have a problem with people saying, I support hunting for deer. But then you start maybe talking about mountain lion or bear, grizzly bear or black bear. Then all of a sudden, you've got some discussion where that number drops considerably, maybe down to um, 50% or so. Um, turkey, wild turkey, way up there. Deer, way up there. Um, elk way up there, but then those other species you see a decline. So it depends on the species. It depends on the motivation. You know, maybe it shouldn't, but I'm just telling you what the public thinks. Um, if I ask you or your mom or your dad or your wife or whoever, do you support hunting deer for food? Heck yeah, man, you're gonna, of course. Yeah, of course. So hunting for food, way 80, 90% of American support. But then you talk, well, how about for trophy hunting? And we could get into trophy hunting all day long, but the, but the perception of trophy hunting, okay, the perception of trophy hunting is not what it really is, but the perception of Americans of what trophy hunting is, is that it's wasteful and that it's done only for egotistical purposes or that it diminishes the best animal and it diminishes wildlife populations. Now we know it doesn't, let me talk really quick and say, of course it doesn't, but we're talking perception of the American public. So where you're gonna get 80, 90% of Americans supporting hunting for food, you're gonna get 30% of Americans who support hunting for a trophy and maybe 60% opposing it. And so, so there's lots of variations in there and people think about these things. And, and, and so, it, so it, it, it matters when you talk about legal regulated hunting. It matters when you talk about that hunting isn't poaching. Too many people out there that we, Americans are, there's a lot of Americans out there, they're living in urban areas, they're busy, they're thinking about putting food on the table or their job, and, and they're not thinking about this stuff in a factual manner. So they've got different perceptions about what's out there. And so, um, so that's what we're dealing with. So it depends, while Americans support hunting in general, which is the good news, that can vary considerably based on motivation, species, even, even weapon, that some people might be more supportive of hunting with a bow and arrow and a rifle than maybe hunting with dogs. It's not a weapon, but so there's lots of nuances in that. One of the more interesting things that we have found and I think is important for your listeners to, to, to know about when I lecture to hunters about some of these things is that when I do these demographic analysis, I might come back to you and say, who's, who's more likely to support hunting? Who's more likely to oppose hunting? Well, from an opposition standpoint, it might be more likely to be women. It might be more likely to be in urban areas. In terms of support, it might be white rural males. And then people come back to me and say, I'm the most brilliant researcher in the world because I just told you that old white guys like are more supportive of hunting. But, so let me caveat that. Then you look at the results and there's, a, there's something that's even more important than those obvious demographics. And that is knowing a hunter. If you know a hunter, you are way more likely to support hunting. And if you don't know a hunter, you are at the bottom of that list in terms of opposition. 
And so how we present ourselves um, is incredibly important in terms of, 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 of increasing cultural support for hunting. And then finally, if it's okay, if I can talk a little bit about one more aspect related to that is this whole idea of animal rights, animal welfare, and something that I term dominionism. And so, so what I want you and your listeners to think about is a continuum of how people look at animals. I just talked to you about what their attitudes are toward hunting, but also, but also in this mix is this whole idea of animal rights, animal welfare, and a dominionistic attitude. So it's a continuum. So on one side is animal rights. And animal rights is you can't use animals no matter what. You can't have a pet. You can't eat meat. You can't go to the circus. You can't go to the zoo. No use of animals, period. That's the definition of animal rights. And then there's complications in that in terms that about 15% of Americans have that attitude that animals should have rights like humans. Now, that's kind of weird because 94% of Americans eat meat. I don't, I don't eat my friends, <laughs> you know? So, it's, so the truth is there's probably about three or 4% of Americans that live by an animal rights attitude. And I, 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 I study people for a living. I respect that. If people don't want to use animals, I, I understand it. I get it. And that's fine. And that's, you know, I wouldn't have a job if people didn't have different opinions. So, but there's a group of people that just doesn't want to use animals. So that's an animal rights and that's not the dominant attitude. Now in the middle, in that big broad middle is something called animal welfare. And that's very different because that says that animals can be utilized by humans, but without undue pain and suffering. We wanna minimize pain and suffering. We can use them. Mark, you can go hunt that elk, somebody might say, but man, practice beforehand, hit him perfectly, kill him. He doesn't have any kind of pain and suffering or anything like that. And about 80%, 80% Americans fall in there, that animal welfare. And you know, that's where we stand. But then you have the other side, something called that I I've termed a dominionistic attitude. And that's the opposite of animal rights. That is, you can use animals no matter what. So think about that continuum. You got three or 4% on the animal rights. You got 80% in the middle. And then you got people who on the other side say, we have dominion over animals. Doesn't matter. I, if there's pain and suffering involved, I'm, I'm in charge here, I can use it. So when you talk to people about, about hunting, um, you know, we need to fall in that animal welfare category to be accepted. If we come out and we say, um, I'm gonna kill that son of a bitch, or look at that gut shot, oh, wasn't that funny? Or, you know, um, kill him and grill him. You know, that turns Americans off. They're, they're Americans say you can utilize those animals, but have respect for it. Now, the good news is most hunters do. You know, I mean, one of the things that we've discovered is, is about 95% of American hunters pray for that animal when they kill it. You know, I do. When I, when I went to, I tell me about it going to Africa and I killed that kudu, my several kudus, I went up and, you know, when I'm alone with that animal, I put my head down and you know, and I, I, you know, there's spirit, people don't talk about it, but there's a spiritual aspect to that. People want to know that you respect that animal and what they don't want you to do and, or, or have that perception of as some kind of disrespect. And it, life is too important for that. And so the truth is, is hunting is, is in, is okay because it is an animal welfare activity. Utilize that animal, use that meat, share that meat, respect that animal, um, practice so you don't wound an animal, and, and people are okay with that. So it can get complicated, but those are sort of the general big picture items that I like to talk to people about when we talk about um, American society and their relationship to hunting. You, know, you keep mentioning you know, making the simple complex, and, and I really think it mirrors hunting in and of itself, uh, because, you know, and that's some of the questions that, you know, uh, I get, and I think other hunters get is how can you kill an animal and then say that you also love that animal, right? Um, There's a complexity to hunting. So there's, there, it makes sense that, you know, how people feel about hunting sort of mirrors that same aspect. I want to go back though, uh, real quick to your breakdown of acceptance of hunting by species. 
you mentioned deer, elk, turkey are, are very highly accepted. You mentioned that bear, um, whether it's black or, or brown bear or mountain lions are generally lower uh, accepted. Do you have any insight as to why? I, I mean, it, it, you know, it, an animal's an animal. I, they look different. Um, they, you know, they are a different species, but it's a it's a game animal nonetheless. Well, do you have any insight as to why? Yeah, um, um, we we've looked at that, and there's some interesting things. Um, but the, one of the more important issues is the whole idea that some people don't understand population dynamics. Um, that we can, you know, that the black bear is a perfect example of that. You know, for for years, um, a lot of states didn't have a black bear season. Black bear populations in a number of states have increased dramatically now that there there needs to be a season from a management perspective, from a safety perspective, from a damage perspective, and other issues like that. But yet, most people don't know that. A lot of people think that hunting some of these larger, more quote iconic species is going to harm their populations when in fact that's not true but again we're not we're not dealing with facts here this is where the, the people side comes in and this is why it's so hard for a, a hard biologist to understand that it's like well of course mark but their populations are increasing well i know that i see those numbers i do i do a lot of those studies of in terms of hunting harvest numbers um we see that but a lot of people think oh my gosh we're we're, we're harming these populations, they're gonna go extinct. In fact, a lot of people, a lot more people than you would think, think that hunting some species actually diminishes their populations. Now that's very frustrating for us as the hunting and wildlife management community in that we know all of those species that we've brought back. Yes, it, in some ways it's a little bit of an irony or you know an oxymoron to some, we know it's not true, but. That, that how can you kill something that you love? But yet when you look back on the history, and I'm sure you've had people who could talk about this much more than I, but in terms of the North American model and all of those species that we've brought back, I mean, white-tailed deer, wood duck, swan, pronghorn antelope, Rocky Mountain elk, wild turkey. We brought back wild turkey to, to, from nothing to six, seven million turkeys now. And, and just incredible numbers through scientific wildlife management that's paid for through hunters. We know that, we know that that's a cornerstone that you don't take anything more than you need and you keep those population levels up and that the species we, excuse me, the animals that we hunt are basically surplus animals. Um, but, but the American public, a lot of the American public just doesn't know that. There's just not a lot of factual information that they know that they can rely on. Because the truth is once they're assured of that, then it can become more accepting. So, but on the other hand, the other thing though is that that's not always the case because the other thing is just the whole idea of, of uh, make you sort of that whole idea of anthropomorphism. And that is, is assigning human characteristics to animals through cartoons, through human, did I say that right? Humans to animals. You know that that animals can talk, and there's Bambi, and there's Smokey the Bear, and there's raccoons that talk in the night to each other and plot out how they're going to steal our trash and our camp food and stuff like that. So, um, you know, that's that's a lot of of America's relationship to animals is through movies where animals talk, through cartoons, um, and through a growing um, um, what we call a mutualistic attitude. In fact, we. Um, were part of, the, there was a major study a couple of years ago led by Colorado State University. We were lucky as a, I was asked to be a co-investigator on that project um, to study the changing values that Americans have about wildlife and animals from a more what we call a utilitarian aspect to a more mutualistic aspect. And that's grounded in a changing society. Again, all those demographics that we talked about with hunting are also changing America's attitudes and values toward these animals. And so they're, if they're, think, about, think about your relationship. If you grow up in New York City or Atlanta, downtown Atlanta, on the fifth story of an apartment building, you, what, is, what, what kind of relationship do you have with wildlife? You see it on TV, you see it in books, you see it in zoos. Think about somebody who grew up in rural America and on a farm. 
and understands the, the natural aspect of animals and, and what that entails. I mean, holy cow, those are just two completely different views of wildlife. And that's going to spill over, of course, into hunting and, and those types of things. So really interesting um, juxtaposition and, and dramatic changes in, in everything that's taking place as Americans move forward and relate to the natural world. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Everything you said there makes a ton of sense. Um, you already alluded to some things that um, maybe some hunters, small portion, may say or do uh, that sort of turns off the general public. Uh, so, what what kind of suggestions do you have for hunters or you know people that work within the hunting industry? to try to promote hunting and sort of this positive light to the general public so it becomes more accepted? Yeah, what a great question. The first thing I'd say is, is that the numbers are on our side. And it's, so it's not a matter of changing those values and attitudes in general. It's a matter of affirming them. So I think that's first and foremost important to say. The next thing I would say is, what you do and what you say matters. Your behavior in the field matters. How you talk about a hunt matters. How you post a picture on Facebook of your hunt matters. And, and we need to be self-aware about our actions and our behaviors. Um, so, so it's important to talk about wildlife and hunting with respect because we do. Um, it's important not to break laws and, and those types of things and ethical hunting. And so I would say that, that, that look at yourself through a non-hunter and your actions and behaviors, and does it align with everything that I was saying? Does that picture show respect for the animal? Okay, good. Yes, it does. Check. I'm not over the thing dominating it. Um, am I showing bloody pictures? Am I talking about those son of a bitches and how, do I, how I killed them? And there's more to the hunt than just the kill, as, as everyone knows. I mean, uh, the truth, I, you know, 99, some, 99, I was going to say 99%, some of my spring turkey hunts are 100%, aren't, aren't about the kill at all. And so, but, but sometimes we focus in on that. And so the other, so, so your behavior matters and how you talk about this matters. And, and sometimes we don't do as good a job talking about all of the other great things that happen during a hunt. You know, don't focus in on that kill. Talk about the friendship and the camaraderie that you have. Talk about the beautiful sunsets. I mean, you know, you and I can say spring turkey hunting, and you and I know what that means. Yeah, we know what that means. We can talk about, about deer hunting or, you know, I was telling you about some of my kudu hunts or other hunts in Africa or whatever it might be. But somebody who doesn't know about that, who hasn't experienced it, doesn't understand that. Spring turkey hunting, I mean, those spring flowers, those beautiful mornings of getting out there when it's pitch black and the sounds of the forest and everything about that. And so it's important for us to communicate better about, about what it is that we, we do. And, and words matter. And, and anybody who talks about or thinks about politics knows that words matter. How we, you know, think about maybe some of the firearms thing where people talk about an AR-15 well, and then somebody says, oh, it's an assault rifle. So those two things can, can conjure up different things. And so as we talk about hunting, it's, again, important to be self-aware of how we talk about things and to share with people what it is we do and why we love it. The outdoors, the, the relationships that we have with our fathers or our sons or our friends. I mean, we can go out with a friend and it's, it's, sometimes my wife will say, you know, well, you know, you went out hunting with Peter. What'd you guys talk about? And it's like, well, I don't, we, we really didn't. <laughs> you know, we kind of sat there and she's like, well, you didn't really talk. I was like, well, you know, that those things people just don't understand. And so I think it, we need to be better communicators and be aware of how people hear us. So there's a, a saying in communication that it's not what you say, it's what people hear. It's not what you say, it's what people hear. And so sometimes it's good to get out of ourselves, look at the pictures on Facebook. I mean, there's some, there's some appalling things that people have posted. Now that's the minority, that's the minority, but people still see it and people, and we still as a community get called out on that. 
think about someone, we're not going to mention names or images or anything, but you know, we've gotten a black eye because of one or two people posting things that should have never been posted of language that should never be repeated in public. And so, um, you know, be, be a good boy. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you say, you know, it's not about what you say. It's how it's what people hear. It's the same thing with the pictures. You know, it's not what you post. It's what people interpret that picture to look like. And, exactly. you know, in the eighties and nineties and, and even early two thousands, um, it didn't matter what kind of pictures you took because the only people that saw those pictures after you, you know, took it to the, to the, uh, Photoshop and got that, that negative, um, you know, processed and pictures printed out in that whole long process. The only people that saw those pictures were the people you showed them to, which were probably yeah. going to be other hunters, other people yeah. that understand where those pictures are coming from. Um, now, you know, you take a picture, you throw it up on social media and, you know, you do that within, <clears throat> within 20 or 30 seconds. Um, it's not just other hunters that understand, you know, everything that went into that picture being taken, you know, all those, like you said, sometimes feels like a hundred percent of your hunts are unsuccessful. Um, it's people that don't understand that and, and see a, you know, quote unquote, grip and grin type picture. Uh, and they're interpreting it a completely different way than maybe you even hadn't intended, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and then the, the, the worst ones are the egregious ones, you know, that, 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 that those pictures that connotate that dominionistic attitude that I was talking about in that animal rights, animal welfare continuum. And you know, some of those can get four or five million hits and they can be used against the hunting community. It makes no sense whatsoever that people do that. I, I, I have an article that I wanna write, I haven't written it yet, but something to the effect of um, you know, an unethical hunter is an anti-hunter's best friend because that's what it comes down to. It doesn't make you cool. It doesn't, you know, it just, it doesn't do the things I think that some people think it might do it. And again, the, the, the issue is it's only a very, very small percentage. I mean, I mean, the, the good news is, is most hunters are really ethical and they get it, but it's no different than maybe, you know, I, I, this was a year and a half ago. I'd say I fly all the time, but I, you know, I, I, I used to be in the air every week or every other week, you know, 3 million miles with Delta alone. I was in the air a lot, you know, it was, it's flying is safe. But for a lot of people who don't fly, one plane crashes and they're never going to get on an airplane again. And so from a, from a, a statistical standpoint, you know, it's very safe. But from a public perception standpoint among people who don't fly, it's not. And so, again, it's that self-awareness of what people are hearing and, and, and having that low knowledge level about what it is that we do and why we do it. All right. So last question for you, and I'm, I'm saving the big one for the end. Uh oh. In your 31 years, um, 35 years, your whole career, all these studies you've done, uh, what do you perceive as being the biggest threat to hunting? Yeah, I, I would say where I would I would end where I started is it's, it's demographics. I mean, changing demographics um, is the silent um, monster in terms of working against hunting numbers. Um, if you, if you, in, in, if you grew up, if, if you did it in 1920 or 2020, if you grow up in a rural area, if your, if your dad and your brothers hunt, if there's lots of opportunity to hunt, you're going to become a hunter and you're going to get it. Chances are you're going to become a hunter and get it three out of four people who are, who are in that sort of Petri dish, if you will. Um, if you grow up in an urban area and you don't know anybody who hunts and you're not exposed to it and you only see things on TV or only hear things from other people that aren't as positive a light as you would want them to be, you're probably not gonna hunt. So from simply a changing demographic standpoint, um, it's easily the most, um, the most difficult and the most challenging. So that's the hard news. The good news is the community finally gets it. Um, there's um, something you probably heard or maybe even talked about, the R3 effort, recruitment, retention, and reactivation. Um, we've got amazing people now who are doing things and, and exposing people to hunting who've never been before. And, and think about what happens. They're just like, wow, this is amazing. 
you know, some of my friends that I've taken duck hunting before, and we have this great day, and they're like, this is amazing. And so it's, it's, it's hard to replicate that in any other way except doing it. And so while those might be the greatest threats to hunting, you know, the future of hunting really lies in hunters' hands. It lies in behavior, as we've talked at length about in terms of positive behavior, but it also um, lies in us taking people and exposing people to hunting who haven't been or have, have, you know, sort of been out of it for a while to get them back into it. Because it's, it's an amazing activity. It's like no other, I don't even like to call it a recreational activity because we're talking, humans have been hunting for 2 million years. Humans have been hunting for 2 million years. 93% of Americans eat meat. 80% of Americans support hunting in general. We've got a lot going for us. The Pittman-Robertson Act that we talked about established in 1937, the billions of dollars that that has brought into state agencies who have used scientific work to bring back all those wonderful species that, you know, at the turn 1900s, you know, a lot of people didn't think they'd ever see a wood duck again, or an elk again, or a turkey again. And yet through hunters dollars, through purchasing guns and ammo, and that are taxed at 11%, or through their licenses, I mean, those go right into those agencies that do amazing work. I mean, no industry, in my opinion, has done more with so little, you know, bringing back these species, bringing back the habitat that we do, the duck stamps, and all of that money that goes to habitat protection is amazing. And so I'm a huge advocate of the, of the North American model of wildlife conservation. And, and if, based on everything I've talked about, yeah, we've got some issues that we need to deal with, but um, man, we're doing things right. And I hope that continues. Yeah, well said. I, I have nothing I can add to that because that <laughs> is extremely, extremely well said. Uh, Mark, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate this. This has been very insightful um, and hopefully, you know, either the, the hunting listeners of this podcast gained a little information on how to present themselves uh, and hunting in a positive light and any non-hunting listeners maybe understand a little bit better uh, all the positives that, that hunting, you know, can present to wildlife in our natural world around us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for all you do. Well, that will do it for today's episode. I want to thank all of you for listening. I want to thank Mark for joining me. This was great to talk about this. And I know some of the stuff that we talked about might sound a little disappointing. Overall numbers of hunters are falling, percentage of the population is falling, but we have to start somewhere and, you know, in order to fix these issues. And you start by figuring out what is the problem. Like, where, where are we currently at? And I find a lot of promise in a lot of these surveys because for the, for the first time, uh, you know, we're looking at numbers from the general public that support hunting from a food aspect. Like when we see that, when that survey comes to light and we see those numbers, we have to take control of that. And we have to be like, hey, look, we can find ways to preserve our hunting heritage. What do we need to focus on to get people who don't hunt to support us? Food. Food is a great way to do that. And then we can you know, use that as a stepping stone into getting more people into hunting because then they can see this as a way to source their own food. There's a lot of great stuff that came from that conversation um, and how, you know, we need to uh, sort of portray the hunting lifestyle and, and take a new ownership in this sort of new realm of thinking now, you know, um, less grip and grins as we talked about and more focus on the conservation work that we do and, you know, on boots on the ground conservation work that we do and the food that we make and sharing that, that food with other people. Those are the kind of things that we can do to promote hunting to the general public that will hopefully help increase the numbers and the percentage of the population 
that is going to participate in hunting. And, you know, like Mark said, our demographics are changing. We, hunting needs to change along with it. That doesn't mean that we need less middle-aged white males from rural communities hunting. What that means is we need to retain those people, like myself, and then also add people from minority groups, people from urban settings, people that don't normally hunt. We need to add those people to what we already have. And that is what's going to save hunting. Thanks for listening. And until next week, stay wild.